Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue. And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sioux, and this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by UniSA, the university that once had a research institute named after Bob Hawke. Yeah, <laughs> The true. former Labour Prime Minister of Australia. Yeah, there's still parts of the university named after Bob Hawke. There's the Hawke Centre. do a lot of uh, important uh, outreach and public events. Yeah. Louis, did I ever mention that I actually presented to Bob Hawke? No. No, I didn't. Yeah, it was part of the Hawk Research Institute steering committee meeting. Exciting. And I was asked to present on some aspect of the institute, but the slot they gave me to present at was right before lunch. Uh, <laughs> I feel like Hawk wouldn't have enjoyed your I could tell you the off. exact moment where not just he, but everyone else in the room lost interest. <laughs> was it when you said, hi, my name's Eric? Pretty much, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> no, it was actually like 10 minutes in. Yeah. And that's when they were wheeling out all the food. Oh, yeah. And like the beautiful wine. Yeah. And beautiful once, wine. yeah, there was wine at the lunch meeting. Wow. Yeah. By the way, I'm not sure why I called it beautiful. You mean? <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. It's, maybe it's all that Trump impressions, that I, all the Trump impressions I've been doing. It was perfect. It was beautiful. <laughs> they wheeled out this wine. It was beautiful. <laughs> God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, he just lost interest. And mm. I just had to really quickly race through. Mm. I had to speed through the rest of my presentation. Oh, God. <laughs> the transition. That's right. <laughs> and that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Mm. We're going to talk about not my presentation that I gave to Bob Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be weird, wouldn't it? Well, yeah. yeah. We're talking about the social phenomenon of speed. Mm. More specifically, we're going to talk about the sociological theory of social acceleration. And social acceleration is one of those terms that sounds quite complex, but it actually refers to a very basic idea. What is that idea, Louis? That idea is essentially that everyday life is speeding up. Yeah. That, it's getting faster. Yeah. And it's getting faster in terms of the things around us are changing at a quicker rate, that we're expected to do more during our day, hmm. that we do do more during our day, that the time period we get for a task is getting shorter and shorter. It's that sense that we're kind of harried, that <laughs> that, that life is really kind of hmm. getting away from us because we can't keep pace with it. Yeah, and numerous social commentators have made this observation that Modern societies are increasingly speeding up. Some people think our lives are overly speedy. <laughs> you know, they're too fast. But sociologists haven't been left out of this discussion. And the sociologist that's most associated with the theory of social acceleration is the German sociologist Harmut Rosa. Rosa produced a really influential piece in the journal Constellations about social acceleration and how we can theorize it and how we can understand it in a multifaceted and nuanced way. And Rosa's starting point is pretty straightforward. He's trying to help us better understand how modernity and social acceleration are linked. Mm. How are they linked, Louis? 
Well, in a nutshell, Rosa describes social acceleration, this speeding up of life and speeding up a social change, as the temporal dimension of modernity. Mm. Rosa says this social acceleration is a feature of modernity. It's caused by all the changes that are occurring at the start and through modernity, and it also contributes to those changes. Yeah. And think of capitalism. Yeah. Right? The, we've talked about capitalism on this podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a key issue in the field of sociology. Mm. Because it's a really important social system that has an effect on our everyday lives. And capitalism does many things to our lives. But one of its core features isn't just that it tries to revolutionize the way in which things are produced. It actually tries to make those production processes a lot more speedy. Yeah. It's really interesting. In this piece, uh, Rosa quotes uh, Benjamin Franklin and his famous statement about time being money in a capitalist system. And that really just points towards the fact that because in a capitalist system, we're constantly driven to generate profit, to reduce our costs. That means that now every second a worker spends on a job is costing someone money. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's an impetus to speed up everything, yeah. speed Don't up the rate you can time, produce. Yeah, right? that's Be right. as productive as possible. Yeah. But the speeding up of everyday life isn't just reducible to capitalism and mm. its emergence. There's also a sense in which there's a cultural dimension of modernity that is also linked to the phenomenon of social acceleration. And this has to do with the increasing rationalization of everyday life. Rosa makes a really interesting observation that modern societies are distinguished by their move away from tradition. So if you think about pre-modern societies, if we can call that, or non-modern societies, according to a number of scholars, mm. there's much more of an adherence to tradition. Mm. Why are we doing things the way we're doing them? It's because that's how they've always been done. Yeah. And this makes total sense when you think about a feature of social exhilaration being social change occurring more rapidly mm. in a traditional society where all you're trying to do is replicate the past or adhere not to- Not much changes. Yeah. Like you said, not much changes. But in a modern society where you're constantly trying to improve the way things are done, yeah. you're constantly trying to make things more efficient or accord to some new principle, then things change regularly. Yeah. You're not bound by yeah. tradition. Yeah. And it's not just that you institute one change and then that's yeah. it. In a modern society, as the work of the UK sociologist Anthony Giddon tells us, we're constantly asking ourselves, did we make the right choice? Can we improve? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And so it's like we are being reflexive about being reflexive. Yeah. Can I <laughs> give you an example? Slightly embarrassing example, yeah. Eric. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other day I went into a Hungry Jacks. <laughs> go, they, I'm, I'm not Burger quite, King uh, to uh, Burger people King, outside of right. Australia. Uh, that's right. And they had a, the Rebel Whopper. <laughs> sure. By the way, call me, we're open to sponsorship, Hungry Jacks <laughs> or Burger King. Yeah, what a Rebel. Uh, yeah. I went in there. I couldn't work out how to order it. The systems had all changed. I used to be able to go to someone at the counter and tell them what you wanted and pay you money. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't been to Hungry Jacks in a while. And there was computers everywhere. I had to go to some computer and press buttons yeah. and get a ticket and take it to somewhere That's else. Right. Or somewhere. I didn't know what was going on. In a traditional society, at a fast food restaurant, <laughs> if someone came up with the idea of using these self-ordering kiosks, they would say, nah, we, we're not going to yeah. do that. Because someone's always been there to take your order. Yeah. That's and right. we need to stick to that. So, and th- here's the thing. In a modern society, 
there's no reason why those kiosks will always exist. Mm. Absolutely. It won't be long before I walk in. As I walk through the door, my phone will just sort of send a message to something in the system and they'll know what I want and my yeah. burger will be waiting like for me. Once you've figured out how to use the kiosk, they'll get rid of them. <laughs> that's so true. And well, that is actually a really good point because that's what social acceleration is kind of like. Yeah. It, the, the world's constantly changing. It's liquid. You can never quite get a grip on things yeah. because it's just getting quicker and quicker and quicker. Yeah. Or maybe I'm just getting older and older. Probably. probably. <laughs> now, this piece by Rosa doesn't just draw a link between modernity and social acceleration. It also advances a more nuanced, a more multifaceted account of social acceleration because Rosa notes that when people talk about accel social acceleration, they're oftentimes amorphous as to what they actually mean. You know, when someone says that social life is speeding up, there's an ambiguity it's as to term, isn't yeah, it? what that actually refers to. So what he does is he actually breaks social acceleration down into three components. He thinks there are three facets of social acceleration and he spells out what those facets are and how they can be empirically verified. So the first form, the first type of social acceleration he thinks exists in the modern world is what he calls technological acceleration. In a separate work, I've actually argued that this is better known as processual acceleration. Hmm. But what he's really trying to get at here is the idea that social acceleration involves the continual reduction in the amount of time it takes for a goal-oriented task to reach completion. Hmm. Now, that's quite a mouthful, but essentially what he's trying to draw our attention to here is that it constantly takes less and less amount of time theoretically speaking anyways, for things to reach completion. Yeah. What's an example of that, Louis? Well, we can think of examples of that by thinking about tasks first, I suppose. So like the task of communicating with someone, someone who doesn't live in your direct vicinity that you can't communicate with face-to-face. -face. Hmm. Once upon a time, you probably would have had to send that person a letter. Yeah. That letter would have had to go on the post. The amount of time it took was related to how far away they were. Yeah. And it would take maybe a long time. Maybe the letter get lost. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Whereas these days, you'd send them an email. A much quicker process, almost instantaneous. Does it, it hits their inbox and then they have to either ignore it or respond. And you could even argue that with the emergence of smartphones and smart media technologies like Twitter, mm. people no longer have to like log in yeah. to their email accounts. Like, do you remember back in the days of dial-up internet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, when people had email. It yeah. was faster, arguably, than yeah. sending a physical letter. But you'd have to like boot up your computer, which could take like minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and I've right. got, and exactly. now people just like literally turn on their phones yeah. and then boom, the message is yeah. there. Another great example that I was thinking about earlier as well is watching a movie. It wasn't all that long ago where to watch a movie, you had to go to the video store, <laughs> browse the shelves, yeah. pick out your video, go home, watch it. If you're anything like me and your dad had gone down to pick the movie, it was always a clunker. <laughs> it was a risky process. But now, you, know, you just go on Netflix, have a quick scroll through, and you're watching something in no time. Yeah. It's super quick now to get access to a whole library of different films and other media content. But interestingly enough, Rosa makes a really astute observation. In the modern world, people don't just complete things more quickly. 
their lives paradoxically seem to get busier. Because on the one hand, you'd think if there's technological acceleration in the society you are based in, that people have loads of free time because people are no longer burdened by having to spend loads of time doing things. But just because you no longer have to go to the post office to send a letter to someone, does that mean you can like bank that time and spend it in a leisurely way? I wish. <laughs> I wish. And that's such a good example because Rosa really points to this sort of paradox. If technology is getting quicker, why shouldn't we have excess time? And with that example, it's because maybe there was an expectation as part of your job that you'd write two to three letters a day, that you'd have to think through them and then you'd write them and then you'd walk to the post office and post them or whatever. Mm. There's a certain amount of time allocated to that task. Whereas now, there's pretty much an expectation that you're going to sit there and outlook all day and answer every email that comes in. And I can't tell you how many emails... I, I receive and send a day. I never, ever feel like I actually clear my inbox on a day. Yeah. It, it is an accelerated thing how much communication I'm expected to do. And yeah. I mean, imagine how much effort it would have been to say to someone that you like this thing that's happened in their life. Like now people post things onto platforms like Instagram mm. and then people don't really think about it, but they'll just hit the like button. But imagine if like every single time (laughs) you'd have to like go to the post office and say, with response to the photo you have posted in the town hall or town square, I would like to indicate that I like that thing you've just posted. Yeah. And <laughs> you'd probably you'd probably get very few likes. Right? Maybe you wouldn't. I just walk around like. like. Um and I think the the video is another good example of that because when you did go through that ritual of going to the video store and hiring the video, that was the video for the night. That's what you'd watch. And then maybe you'd even re-watch the same video the next day before it got returned. (laughs) But that was it, right? Whereas now, if I'm not excited by a movie (laughs) on one of the streaming platforms in the first five minutes, I will cut it and go to the next one. You literally have like five minutes to hook me. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm I'm off to something else. Yeah. I'm imagining, Louis, when you're like (laughs) watching these shows and movies, you're like sitting there with your arms crossed saying things like, entertain me. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Like, it's not far off that. And the life... And if it doesn't, you're like, next, (laughs) next. (laughs) And the likelihood that I'm going to watch more than one movie... And the feeling that I'm never, ever going to be able to watch it all, like these things are very real. And you could see how you can empirically measure this. Yeah. You can look at time use diaries and see how much multitasking people are doing also. You could see how much people are packing into their day. I mean, from a work point of view, you can see how social acceleration is linked to the increasing harriedness of people's lives. Mm. And then there's a third dimension of social acceleration that Rose identifies, which is the acceleration of social change itself. What is he trying to get at there? This is kind of the type of acceleration we were talking about a bit at the start of this podcast, when it's the acceleration of how quickly everything's changing around us. Hmm. Rosa refers to the present being the moment in which our expectations match the reality. 
So, for instance, we may as well stick with the streaming platform example. <laughs> mm, mm. I would consider the present being when I log on to the streaming platform and the top 10 movies in Australia right now or TV series are the ones I expect. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's in the news at the moment. That's popular, whatever. But so often when I log on, the top 10 I've never heard of. I don't know where they are. They're new. The, the 10 I was expecting to be there are gone because they're no longer new enough. Yeah. And that's this sort of social change, our expectations about how to order Hungry Jacks yeah. or it's, it's <laughs> our expectation no of social change itself yeah how much change do we expect at any moment in time mm. and you could see how again this might be empirically measured you could see if change about some aspect of society is occurring at uh, intergenerational level a generational level or intragenerational level so previously things would just stay the same across different generations. Like what would happen in one generation would likely apply to others. But now I don't even think that's true within a generation. And the, the obvious example that's often given is jobs, the type of jobs people do. Once upon a time in like a traditional society, it's quite likely that children would be in the same occupation as their parents and they maybe be in the same occupation as their grandparents. And then as modernity moved along, all of a sudden it was more likely to, for children to have a different occupation to their parents. Mm. And now we're told we're going to have four or five different occupations through our life and we need to be mobile and re-skill and retool so we can change jobs yeah. at kind of a drop of a hat, yeah. which sounds this, horrible, but if this, <laughs> if this being an academic thing doesn't work out for me, I'm going to have to somehow leverage my ability to do a Trump impression for another line of work. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> I don't know what that would be. I don't know yeah. what that would be. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could go to like a shopping center and be the people at the front with the microphone trying to entice people in to buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we have got such great vegetables oh. in the store. Why do we do this, Louis? I don't know. It always goes back to the Trump question. Maybe it's because I, I always so much yeah, Trump. think... Oh, God. And it's what, what are you going to do doing? if he goes to jail? We'll have to do a whole special episode on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh. Louis, I'm mindful of the possibility that there are some people that must hate my Trump impression. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like quite a few people <laughs> would probably hate your Trump impression. Yeah. But uh. if you think about it, why are they still listening then? I don't know. Yeah. Stop listening. Stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, going back to the piece by Rosa, what's really interesting about it is not just that Rosa's trying to develop a more nuanced way of understanding social acceleration by putting forth a tripartite account of what it consists of. Rosa is also trying to think of acceleration as not being this totalizing phenomenon because it's a really simple observation to make probably too simplistic of an observation to make, that social life in the modern world is just simply speeding up. Mm. And so he makes this really astute observation that any analysis of social acceleration also needs to take into account the inverse of social acceleration, which is social deceleration. Mm. And he thinks there's all these different types of social deceleration. The first is that there are just some things that are not able to be infinitely sped up. Yeah, the speed limits, natural and anthropological speed limits. Yeah. So we might try to accelerate how quickly the body can move. Yeah. <laughs> like the 100-yard dash or the 100-meter dash, rather. Yeah. That's my American 
darkness coming out. <laughs> but the human body can only be manipulated in certain ways. Yeah. <laughs> Although, uh, speak to the mid-2000s Tour de France peloton. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, there are natural limitations to what, how, how quickly or how much we can speed up human actions. There's also attempts to intentionally decelerate the speed of everyday life. So you might have some parts of the world, you might have some parts of modern societies, which try to resist the logics of acceleration. And so this kind of explains why there are some people who advocate for a more traditional existence, for example, or who resist some of the logics of capitalism. So is this a community-based form of deceleration? Yeah, that's right. There's also a sense in which deceleration can be an unintended consequence of acceleration. And this is a super fascinating point he's making here, right? Mm. Because you'd think normally that deceleration just occurs in opposition to acceleration. But what he's trying to get us to think about is how sometimes acceleration can accidentally lead people to live slower lives. What's a good example of this? A classic example would be traffic jams. Yeah. It would be people driving to speed up their commute to work, to move at a quicker pace, more and more people doing it. They're being in acceleration. But then all of a sudden, because of the number of cars on the road, suddenly traffic jams occur, more infrastructure needs to be put on the roads like traffic lights, and it means that suddenly the commute slowed down. Yeah. There's a deceleration. No one, when they're stuck in traffic, is thinking to themselves, I really... I'm glad that I'm traveling at such a slow pace. Mm. Everyone's thinking that by driving their car, it'll be faster to get from point A to point B. And then, interestingly enough, there's also some forms of deceleration that can be in service of acceleration. So what does he mean by that? So it means that there are forms of kind of slowdown that are done in response to the speeding up of daily life, and they kind of help people reset and cope with the speeding up of daily life. So maybe something like doing a yoga retreat or hmm. in being involved in slow food practices where you purposefully take your time to cook and prepare a meal instead of just getting a, a takeout, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. is something I should do more of. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, these intentional slowdown moments are. So. And then the last type of deceleration that Rosa theorizes in this piece has to do with people's experience of social change. And this leads us to a segment we like to call Say What? <laughs> <laughs> Where we provide an explanation of a complicated passage in the text. Rosa writes, finally, we find the perception that in late modern society, despite widespread acceleration and flexibilization, which create the appearance of total contingency, hyper-optionality, and unlimited openness, real change is in fact no longer possible. The system of modern society is closing in, and history is coming to an end in a hyper-accelerated standstill or polar inertia. What is he trying to say there, Louis? What he's saying there is that Social exhilaration has become so encompassing that we're just trying to catch our tails with all the everyday changes that are occurring. Yeah. We're so busy keeping up with the recent fashions, making sure we're liking what's popular, remembering how to order food at Hungry Jack's. Burger know, King for those Burger people King. outside of Australia. Sorry, Burger King <laughs> for international listeners. 
we're constantly keeping up with the changes of everyday life that we can't really, we don't have the energy or the time to involve ourselves with the bigger changes. Things like challenging, you know, unfair political structures, that sort of yeah. level change. Yeah. Those like, big foundational long-term changes. Change is just a regular feature of what it's like to work at a university these days. Yeah. Like systems are changing. The academic units we belong to seemingly change yeah. at a moment's notice. Yeah. And when these changes occur, I don't think anyone ever thinks to themselves, wow, we've done it. Mm. That's it. No more changes. We're now going to be marching in this one direction and one direction only. Mm. You just get used to the change. You adapt to it. Mm. But then it's on to the next one. And I think the point that Rose is making as well as that is that not at this university because we're very happy and it's a wonderful university. Brilliant but, <laughs> university. Amazing. But let's say you worked at an organization that wasn't good and then suddenly someone wanted to organize a big protest or a rally or wanted to actually change that organization in a foundational way. No one would have the time to do it. I'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't attend because I've got to answer these emails and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And this actually then links to the final section of this particular article where Rosa spells out some of the ethical implications of the sociological study of social acceleration because social acceleration isn't just this neutral phenomenon. And he tries to put forward a rather balanced analysis here. On the one hand, there are some real positive potentials that are linked to living in a high-speed society to social acceleration. Like Imagine if you lived in a society where nothing changed. Mm. Well, then that would just entrench existing social inequalities and injustices, mm. right? There's that famous term in legal studies, justice delayed is justice denied. But at the same time, what happens if you live in a society that is overly speedy, overly quick? And you can also think of this in terms of politics, you can think of what it means to live in a democracy where nobody has time to participate in civic life. Mm. You can think of what happens when politicians just speak in sound bites. Yeah. So often you hear the analysis that the 24-hour news cycle has degraded our politics because politicians are just reacting and responding to the next news story, trying to stay in the news, trying to keep the story positive about them. And that is not an approach to politics that's conducive to long-term reform, long-term planning. Mm. So there are some real issues then to confront about the speed at which societies operate. Mm. And this is one of the things I think Rosa's piece draws out. And others have also taken up this theory and looked at it from a number of different angles. The work of William Shuriman, for example, has looked at how speed is integral to our analysis of democracies. Mm. I've written about the slow food movement and how it's probably more useful to think about slow and fast not as being these polar opposites, but how oftentimes they are in relationship with, with one another. Mm. They're in a dynamic relationship with one another. And also, uh, a colleague of mine, Philip Vossel, has written about how slowness is ambiguous in terms of its social meanings and its social effects. Because you might think it's just great to embrace a slower lifestyle. Mm. You have things like the slow food movement, the slow scholarship movement. But there are some things we need to consider when we analyze, when we think about slowness in the contemporary modern world. 
So this is all a way of saying that it's useful to do a slower, more careful reading of this text. Yeah. <laughs> We've sped through yeah. loads of Rose's ideas, but we haven't been able to capture everything. No. We've captured enough, though. <laughs> for yeah, this, for this right. podcast for episode, this we've captured, captured enough. enough. That's yeah. right. Hurry up, Eric. Come Hurry on. up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's bring this episode then to a close. Thanks very much for always for listening. We'll catch you in the other episodes. Thank you. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue. To learn more about studying sociology and other exciting programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily produced on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. The opinions expressed in the Sociology of Everything podcast are that of the hosts and guest speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone at UniSA or the institution at large. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, then visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.